Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a repeated founder, a founder that was, you know, uh, raised and grew and, and, and really learned, you know, the inside and outside of startups in Startup Nation from Israel. So we're going to be, you know, really learning a little bit about building, scaling, financing, and all of the good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Jonathan Matus, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alejandro. Pleasure to be here. So you were born in New York City, but raised in Tel Aviv. What a nice combination. You also walked through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, that's right. I was born in New York, but grew up in Tel Aviv and was too young to remember when my parents moved. Tel Aviv is a very lively and dynamic city. Uh, even in the 80s when I was uh, a kid there, it was lovely. And now it's one of the best places in the world, in my opinion. Uh, it's also a, you know, a, a, a tense and a charged place to be, and it produces some really interesting entrepreneurs. And uh, I think uh, a very high ratio of chutzpah to uh, capita, uh, <laughs> per capita for, for the world. And so that's why you see uh, a lot of entrepreneurs coming out of it. So how, tell us about the military service, because, you know, that's a, obviously a must there, uh, but uh, I'm sure it really gives you a lot of discipline and and a lot of, you know, perspective when you are that young and all of a sudden, you know, like you get to see the, um, you know, different side of things. Yeah, well, you know, when you're in it, you don't uh, appreciate it. But after the fact, you realize that as an 18 year old, you definitely uh, received some lessons that you wouldn't get anywhere else. But uh, for those of you not familiar with it, in Israel, you have a three year mandatory service. And so I was uh, obviously part of that. And uh, uh, the school that I came from, which was a boarding school in the middle of the desert in Israel, uh, produced a lot of people interested in special forces and um, uh, being fighter pilots and things of that sort. Um, and I was uh, I was a, a part of that to some degree, but uh, ended up in intelligence and had a fascinating uh, three years in the military. Um, definitely learned a few lessons about myself, probably that I can push out more than I possibly imagined it possible, if uh, if only. Uh, um, uh, if I was only a little more tenacious. And I think that's a lesson that served me well as an entrepreneur. So in your case, how do you end up 
coming to the U.S. for your studies, and you know, more importantly, at Harvard, one of the best universities in the world. Uh, well, uh, there's a lot of uh, luck and humility in everything related to my career, including this. Um, when I was done with my military service, just like any other Israeli, I felt like I needed to go and travel. But being the kind of geeky um, kid that I that I was and still am to some degree, um, I wanted to combine studying together with travel. And so uh, I picked up my American passport that was sitting in my uh, parents' cupboard and, and said, hey, can I, can I try and do both? And they said, yes, sure you can, but we can't possibly afford to spend $50,000 a year on, on your college education. In Israel, the, the cost of education is much uh, cheaper. So I had to go and find a place where I can get a full scholarship and, and basically finance my own education. And um, I applied to all the, all the Ivy League schools, got into none of them and ended up going to uh, a wonderful program at Boston University where I was very fortunate to study under uh, a gentleman called uh, Sheldon, Sheldon Glashow, Professor Sheldon Glashow, who's a Nobel laureate in physics. And um, there's a long story about how we got, we got together, but to cut a long story short, he became my advisor and we became good friends. And after a couple of years of studying at Boston University where I, I had a full scholarship, the university actually shut down that scholarship program. And so I had to go back to my parents and say, hey, mom, pop, I'm sorry, but I know I promised you I can't, uh, I promise you I'll, I'll support myself through, through college, but I actually need those $50,000 a year. And I said, sorry, Jonathan, we can't help you with that. And, um, and I spoke to my advisor, Sheldon, um, and he was, again, an Nobel laureate, someone who spent a lot of his time at Harvard. And he said, you know, I'm going to write you a, a recommendation later. Let's see if we can get you across across the river. And that's how I found myself at Harvard. Um, changed my focus from physics to neuroscience and AI when I was there, and uh, and the rest is history. I mean, this is 2004, 2006 when you know AI and all of this crazy hype, you know, was not there. So what what caught you really your attention about this? You know, why were you so excited about this segment? Um, you know, that's really interesting, but um, the story of how I got obsessed with, with AI and neuroscience actually goes back a few years earlier. I was, um, uh, right before my military service, traveling in Europe with a, a Dutch friend of mine. And, um, and we were visiting a friend in Amsterdam, and in his library there was a book by Douglas Hofstadter um, and Roger, Roger Penrose, a very famous mathematician. Douglas Hofstadter wrote the Gordon Lesher Bach book. Many people uh, probably read that. And the book's called The Mind's Eye. And that just completely uh, got me obsessed with computer science and AI and philosophy of the mind. And um, it's funny because the things that I read there and then the things that I wrote my honors thesis at, um, at Harvard about started exploding on the internet and on Twitter about a year ago. Uh, with ChatGPT. And so the things that at the time were discussed in philosophy books and in math books are now being built and hotly debated online. Um, so it's a full circle and something that I'm pretty excited about, actually. That's incredible. So in your case, you know, obviously one thing led to the next and you find yourself at Google. So why Google out of all places? So before uh, joining Google, I was sure I'm going to be in academia. I spent all of my summers doing research in fMRI labs and cognitive neuroscience lab um, and physics labs. But um, in the junior year at Harvard, I noticed that some of the smartest, hardest working people around ended up taking summer internship in 
actual businesses, places like McKinsey and BCG, um, and got me curious. And I spent a summer in San Francisco with the Boston Consulting Group. And I learned a few things. I learned that San Francisco is a very special city and I want to spend some time there. I learned that there are amazingly driven, smart, talented people outside of academia. Um, and I also learned that I'm really not a consultant. I, I don't like giving advice. I like building things. And so a year later, I decided to postpone my, uh, my plans of going into grad school and getting a PhD and instead uh, applied to work at Google, which at the time was a very... Um, academic, I want to say, culture. They had a lot of PhDs. They look for people that are fascinated with large problems and are genuinely driven by curiosity. And so I really felt at home with the culture there. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the theme in my career and my life is luck and, and fortune. And I just stumbled into the Android team, which was 25 people at the time, and ended up being one of the first members of what later became the most popular mobile operating system in the world. And also, you did travel quite a little bit with them, you know. Uh, you went, you were in the U.S., then you were in Tokyo. I mean, that was that sounded quite like the experience too. Uh, there was actually so Andy Rubin, the founder of of Android, and kind of like the Steve Jobs of the Android world, uh, loves Japan, Japanese culture, spends a lot of time there. Um, his ex-wife was Japanese. He's really into that culture, and so one of the things that was really important for him was to have a relationship with the Japanese uh, um, arena, whether it's the phone makers, the, the phone carriers, the engineering organizations. And so there's a big office for Google in Japan, and that's where we built the headquarters for Android in Asia. And so after three or so years of working at uh, Building 44 at Google and helping launch and scale um, what was phase one and phase two of Android, I was sent to Japan to help uh, accelerate adoption in Asia. And that was both an amazing cultural experience. Tokyo is one of my favorite places in the world, and I made some amazing friends there. But also there was an interesting opportunity because I spent some time with my future co-founder there, a gentleman called Pankaj Rispud, who was based in, uh, in Bangalore, India, as a part of my travels and business development in, uh, in Asia. So for you, I mean, it sounds like in Google, you were learning quite a bit. You were bouncing from one place to another. Why switching to Facebook? This was after about a year and a half of uh, work in, in Japan, where I was considering coming back to the headquarters of, of, of uh, Android. Uh, and when I came back and visited with, uh, with California headquarters, I realized that the Android team, which when I joined was 25 people, was more than 1,500 people. And, you know, it had a lot of the dynamics that uh, a fast-growing organization had. And I had very little uh, patience. I still have very little patience for, for politics and hierarchies and so on. I just like getting shit done and I like building. And so when I came back and I realized that uh, there's now five people doing the job that I used to do when uh, I was a single person, when it was 25 of us, I realized I want to go to a younger organization. Um, and somehow the Facebook folks sold Facebook to me as a, as a startup, even though it was bigger than the Android team and certainly had a bigger footprint. But I was excited about uh, joining them and learning from an organization that put on its, uh, on its flag, uh, move fast and break stuff. Obviously, they don't think or act this way at this point. But back then, the startup culture and the hacker culture was very central to how Facebook uh, community and, and, and culture and and, and, uh, um, and and the management philosophy was, and I wanted to immerse myself in that. 
And they've given me tremendous opportunity to help launch the mobile platform for Facebook, which um, ended up being, again, more lucky than anything, the second time that I was able to bring a product to more than a billion people. That was very satisfying from a professional perspective. That's amazing. Now, this was the most immediate step towards entering entrepreneurship. So, I mean, you were for quite a few years, you know, working for, for other folks. So why around this time, you know, it felt like it was the time for you to, to go at it on your own? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, I promised myself and my mom that I will stay at, uh, at Facebook at least until the IPO. And so that was kind of a natural time to stop and, and take stock and think about what I want to do next. And as I took a few days off and, and you know meditated on what's important for me and what I've accomplished so far, one thing really stood out. And that is that, you know, while I was a part of two organizations that brought products to more than a billion people, those products, specifically the mobile handsets and, and popular mobile applications, created a lot of negative externalities in the world, things that weren't intended to happen. And one of the things that was relatively easy to measure, but quite devastating emotionally and, uh, and, uh, and upsetting for me, was that people were literally dying. And you could measure the number of fatalities and casualties because of smartphones. And what I'm talking about is crashes on the road, distracted phone use. Um, so every year, there's many, many people, hundreds of thousands of people that are dying on the road globally because of distracted phone use, something that I couldn't really be okay with um, and something that I felt quite passionate to go and try and dedicate the next part of my career to solve. And the beautiful thing about committing the second part of my career to that mission is that the solution actually required a lot of the skills and a lot of the understanding of the technology that I was a part of. So, you know, the only way to help deal with understanding, with, uh, with solving distracted phone use and, and, and reckless driving is to measure and quantify and then influence driver behavior. And the first part of that equation, the measure and quantify, means that you need sensors in every vehicle. And so historically, the approaches for that required putting hardware in cars, literally hard uh, black boxes with sensors and GPS and so on. But that doesn't scale. And that's expensive and that's cumbersome. Well, it turns out that the same thing that I was a part of bringing into every back pocket, the smartphone, is also full of sensors. And it's a supercomputer that's always connected to the Internet. And so the problem is also the solution. And that got me inspired. Um, and decided the next week that I'm quitting my job. And this was early days Airbnb. So I rented the top of my loft and lived in a tiny studio underneath it so that I can support myself and started building. So in this case, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of SendDrive? When I got together with uh, Pankaj, my co-founder, again, uh, a colleague from Google who is absolutely brilliant, but, but uh, based in India, um, we carried over some of our naive Google approach to building businesses and products. And it's a little similar to the concept of when you build it, they will come. In other words, go and solve some difficult technological problem, like a deep tech approach, and then the monetization will come with usage and with, with, uh, with solving something that's really meaningful. Now my approach is quite different. Um, but back then, that was how we started. And the problem that we were set to solve was something that at the time seemed very difficult to do, which is 
how can you understand driving behavior based on smartphone sensors, right? Every car on the road has at least one smartphone. Can you build something into this ubiquity that seamlessly, without destroying battery, without being privacy intrusive, understand driver's behavior and can accurately predict if someone is going to be in a crash? That was the problem statement that we 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 charged on. And as we done that, we were very fortunate to be backed by some investors that shared our our excitement about the problem space, but we really did not have a strong idea for the monetization or the product. And with time, we pivoted from something that started very much as a consumer product. So think of it as kind of like a Waves Plus Plus into a B2B enterprise focused company that uses um, a developer platform to embed technology into many mobile applications and tens of millions of users, collect data, analyze the data, and then offer um, active coaching and active advice and product and solution to both end consumers and large enterprises. So this could be insurance companies like Progressive, this could be car makers like General Motors, could be even telcos like uh, Verizon, a variety of very large organizations. So it took a while, but um, after a few years of, of tinkering with it, we actually found something that worked really well, and we scaled the company up to about 100 people. And also, how much capital did you guys raise for the business? Uh, we raised a little over $50 million um, in two rounds. And, uh, you know, this was about a decade ago. So fundraising back then was a very different story from what it is now. I know that now times are hard, but back then, it was even harder than it is now. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. How have you seen the uh, difference there, you know, on, on fundraising? Like how was it, you know, back then, you know, around that time on 2013 or so, where you guys were getting going with the fundraising that you're seeing now? And, and also, how do you see the current environment for raising money? Yeah, so two great questions. Uh, so 2013, uh, I think it was fairly friendly, but uh, but the valuations and the terms were definitely more VC friendly than founder friendly. So, you know, the kind of terms that we got for our seed round or our A round are are not comparable at all to what you even see now at the compressed environment that we see now. And certainly not in 2021 where things were really peaking. Um, the other thing that I think changed, obviously, is that, you know, I'm now, a, you know, second time and, and a known entity. And so I think a lot of investors find it easy to research me or to figure out and have confidence that I can actually go and build things. Previously, I was just an operator from Google and Facebook. And so uh, that could also play a little bit of a, a role in it. But uh, generally speaking, 
you know, in 2013, the concept of fintech didn't exist. Um, so anyone that was just thinking about building something in InsureTech, for instance, you know, needed to explain why would there be interesting or relevant at all to go and do something like that. Um, the the environment in, in terms of talent, talent itself was quite um, conservative, didn't want to take risks, was very expensive. So it was difficult to convince people to join your company. I think now after a decade of great successes and IPOs and, you know, a lot of funding, uh, you go and you talk to people, very talented engineers in large companies, and they're actually keen to join a startup. So that was quite different back then as well. Um, in terms of the funding environment now, uh, you know, it is still very tough. Um, I would say probably tougher than it's been in, in the last decade or, 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 or so. But um, I think that if you know what you're doing and if you have some traction, then you'll be able to get funding. Um, the pain is primarily concentrated right now. It's the A, B, and later stages, but there's a lot of activity in the seed and pre-seed. So we're seeing a lot of folks starting companies with, I think, both investors and entrepreneurs believing that by the time they'll need to go and get their next funding, uh, the U.S. and the venture environment will have stabilized and interest rates will go down and, and capital will be a little cheaper. And so you go and you build something now and later on we'll be able to fund with rate. And I, and I subscribe to that. I think that's true. We were very fortunate at Fermatic. We raised uh, almost $90 million in the span of, of six months recently. Uh, we were very fortunate because um, as a part of our spin-off out of Zendrive, we brought over some really powerful assets and we were fairly mature as a company. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of drivers on the platform, you know, with double digit million in revenue. It's, it's a pretty serious business already. And so even though it was a young company in terms of chronological age, it was pretty mature. And so right after the A, we got to, uh, to do the B, which now allows us to go and build without worrying about fundraising ever again. So tell us about this spin-off. I mean, why? At what point does the uh, idea of doing this spin-off, you know, becomes evident? And tell us about pulling the trigger because that's a big deal. I mean, you were already pushing SendDrive for quite some time. You had raised a bunch of money. So doing a spin-off at this stage is not an easy. It's not an easy fit. Yeah, uh, spin-offs are are kind of like similar to acquiring a company, and I didn't know that walking into it. Um, and, uh, I think our, you know, our lawyers made a lot of money. That's for sure. I'll tell you that. Um, it's one of those things, just like an acquisition that takes longer than you imagine, um, and can be quite complex, but at the end, if it works well, it can be really, really smart for everyone involved. So the story of the spinoff is the following about, uh, I want to say five years ago at Zendrive, when, as I hinted earlier, we were experimenting and tinkering with a variety of different commercialization and solutions, we started working with insurance companies. And one of the things that we've learned at Zendrive as an enterprise B2B business that helps these insurance companies is that it was quite difficult for them uh, both to implement our technology or in general to implement outside vendor technology, but also they were quite tight-lipped and didn't want to share back whether something worked or not. And if you're trying to build you know, and have two-week sprints, but your customer has a two-year deployment cycle and then wouldn't share much feedback, you're kind of stuck. You need to, you need somehow to get more information, right? It's the basics of building good product. And so what we decided to do is something crazy, which is build a small insurance company, a tiny insurance company, I should say, in-house and control it top to bottom so that we can see the impact of our risk models 
on the financial results, on the customer experience, and iterate on a two-week cycle rather than a two-and-a-half-year cycle. And so we did that, and we kept that tiny organization really starved. It was maybe four or five people for the duration of its uh, uh, tenure at Zendrive. Um, and we've learned a lot from that experience, but we've never really tried to scale that up as a real business. It was more about understanding what's going to be the loss ratio, the financial results of that insurance company, even a tiny scale. And after doing that for three years, we had a conversation with our board. We presented the results. We were really proud of them. We said, look, we have this great loss ratio and customers are happy. And this thing is growing even without us investing in growth. And then one of the board members who was an early investor in Lemonade said, well, you know, if this thing can be actually scaled up, you'll have a generational scale company because no one else in insurance is able to do what you're doing. And that started, you know, a pause where we just, okay, well, what should we do with this? Should we shut it down because it costs money to do this after we prove what we wanted to prove? Should we sell it off? Should we spin it out? We, you know, we talked to some investors. We realized that investors don't want to be on the Zendrive cap table doing something new. Our own investors, you know, looked at our business and said, oh, you have something that's working. Why do you dilute it now and invest a lot of money and hire new people? And it's a distraction. So at the end of the day, we said, okay, we got to either sell it or spin it out. And when it comes to selling insurance companies at the scale that we were, it was really not interesting. And so we decided, okay, let's go and spin it out. And in the process of spinning that out, um, it became clear to me that the same mission that Zendrive has, which is making roads safe, Zendrive is doing that by using data and analytics, but the same mission can actually be built with Firmatic, meaning you can go and make roads safe one fleet at a time by basically incentivizing uh, fleet drivers to do the right thing. And given that about half of the miles on the road are driven by commercial activity, you can actually move the needle significantly there. And in the environment where you're building your own technology, your own solution, you can actually implement all the bells and whistles that we dreamt about and have a really big impact as well. So I decided to join four uh, employees that were shifting with me from Zendrive to Firmatic, and my co-founder, Pankaj, became the uh, CEO of Zendrive. Uh, he's a very, very talented guy. And so both companies were doing well, and I set off to build Firmatic and raise money for it, and that's where I've been the last couple of years. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, now, with Firmatic, uh, how much capital have you guys raised today? You, you mentioned this earlier. Yeah, um, I think uh, right about 85 or 88 or something around that. And then when it comes to uh, also dealing with different time zones, dealing with, uh, with having a, a, global, a global company like you guys have here, I mean, how do you guys think about that? Because you have teams, you know, everywhere. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, my first company, Zendrive, was global by necessity or, or, or sheer luck. And, and the story there is I just really wanted to work with Pankaj, and he happened to be in India. And I remember sitting in, in uh, Jerry Yang's office, the Yahoo founder, I was uh, pitching him to invest. And he said, look, I love what you're doing, but you know, your co-founder is in India and how does it work? You can only build big companies in Silicon Valley. And I told him, look, I'll work with Pankaj even if he was in Switzerland or Tel Aviv or Barcelona. I don't care. I just want to work with this guy. Meet him. They met and Jerry Yang ended up investing because Pankaj is just such an amazing entrepreneur. But... Um, that time, building a team that was um, in two hubs, Bangalore and San Francisco, felt risky and felt like um, a kind of a structural disadvantage for investors and for, for people that join us. 
in the midst of building that drive, it became clear that that's actually an advantage. So both the cost and the access to talent in India is different from Silicon Valley. The competition for A-plus engineers is not as much as it is here. And we were able to build one of the best engineering teams in the world in Bangalore. And so after observing that and learning the power of that, um, I decided with Formatic as we were building to go and repeat that and build another hub in Bangalore. That's what we're doing now. But then also to supplement that with a second hub in Tel Aviv. And there's several reasons for that. But, you know, growing up in Israel and seeing, as you said, uh, Startup Nation, the amazing companies that are built there, I really grown to appreciate the Israeli chutzpah and, and uh, um, lack of respect for hierarchy and for rules. And I think that at the stage of Fermatic, at the stage of building companies right now, just that culture is so powerful. And so you combine it with some, you know, folks that are very experienced in InsureTech and in FinTech, which there's a lot of in Tel Aviv right now. And we were able to bring some of the best people on the planet into that office. And because managing uh, and building product with folks in the West Coast, in San Francisco, where, where I was, and then in India and Tel Aviv is probably the worst time zone setup you can imagine. It's 13 and a half hour different time zone with India. I decided that I need to change something about my life and I should thank COVID for that as well. And moved my family to Portugal, which is just two hours time zone difference from Tel Aviv and just four and a half or five hours different from Bangalore. So I have much more overlap with everyone in the team right now. And in spite of the fact we're not in the same room, I get to spend much more time with them, more, much more meaningful time. So now imagine you go to sleep tonight, Jonathan, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Fairmatic is fully realized. What does that world look like? That's a great question. So as I mentioned right now, about half of the miles driven in the world are driven by fleets of some sort. And so in our vision, those fleets will become a catalyst for a change on the road, making them much, much safer. So insurance will be the financial incentive through which commercial driving will improve. And we actually show that we can do that, even though it's just a few hundred thousand drivers, we show that we can improve driver behavior by 25% during the time that they're with us. And so imagine that instead of hundreds of thousands of drivers, we're talking about hundreds of millions of drivers that have the right incentives and there's fewer and fewer fatalities on the road. And those commercial businesses, often small mom and pop shops that are you know, really pressured to turn a profit in this tough environment, will be able to save some of their money that they're currently just throwing on insurance and, uh, and get that back and grow faster or have a, have a better financial result for themselves. So that's, that's our vision in terms of impact in the world. And in terms of financial impact, the commercial auto insurance space in the world is about a $60 billion um, opportunity. And, you know, in the U.S., there is a very, very large fragmentation within the top 20 insurers. So Progressive is the largest player out there with about 12%. And so my vision would be to be as big or just as big as, big as uh, Progressive with our impact in the market, which will make us, you know, a multi, multi-billion dollar company. Now, imagine if I was to bring you back in time and I bring you back in time to that moment where you were at Facebook wondering, you know, launching something of your own. And you had the opportunity of giving your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when, when I came from Facebook and started a company with my co-founder Pankaj, we put on the Google hat of go and build something that solves a really difficult engineering problem. And I think that we built a really powerful asset through that. But right now, kind of entrepreneur I am focuses much more on end user or business pain and therefore opportunity. And so I would flip the script and probably shave three to five years from the journey and get to commercialization much faster with something that maybe is 80% as powerful as what we had before, but can start bringing customers in, bringing revenue in and so on. And so I think that's also an advice that I give and, you know, first time entrepreneurs coming from large companies where you have endless resources. Um, and that is you have very limited time, very limited dollars and very little attention spent from your customers. And so all you need to focus on really is find that pain point and solve it and then expand from there. And so that's the advice I would give myself. I love it. So Jonathan, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, sure. Uh, they can email me at jonathanetfirmatic.com. Um, they can also uh, follow me on Twitter. Um, and um, yeah, I guess these are the two best ways to reach me. Well, hey, easy enough, Jonathan. Thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.